That's probably true of several uh, of you. It's been a while since you have gotten a report card, but I'm, I still have one that um, from a long time ago, and um, I don't know why I kept it. Well, I guess I do, because the grades on this one were pretty good, and <clears throat> there are a lot of them I didn't save, so what does that tell you? <laughs> but um, this report card was uh, from 1958-1959, and that goes back a ways. And it was from my junior high days in Nashville when we were living there in Nashville before we moved back to my original hometown of Smithville. Can you see those grades okay? I hope you can uh, there. <laughs> but <clears throat> they're, they're, but uh, like I said, I didn't save all of them. But uh, I'm not going to talk about uh, arithmetic or uh, I am going to talk about Bible, but not my grades in Bible uh, at that time. I'm not going to talk about English or reading or... <laughs> or anything else uh, other than on that report card other than this, and that is satisfactory conduct. Now, you notice there's an outstanding ca uh, category on that. I'm not in that category. I did, uh, I'm assuming they just didn't give outstanding. <laughs> you know, satisfactory was as good as you could do. But, uh, no, maybe not. But uh, at least it was, uh, it was satisfactory uh, conduct. But uh, this morning, we're going to look at satisfactory conduct in a most significant uh, way. And that is satisfactory conduct that we find recorded in Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Now, I'm reading those verses from the New King James translation where, where Paul writes, "...only let your conduct..." There's our word, conduct... Uh, manner of life, conversation, the King James says, but the New King James says, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see uh, you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. Satisfactory conduct. Conduct that is worthy of the gospel. That's what we're looking at in these verses. And we need to be able to check off some things about our conduct. Specifically, we're going to look at three statements that are made in this text, three very important admonitions, three very important areas, if you will, of conduct in which we need to be given a satisfactory uh, grade because it is vitally important that we be given that satisfactory grade in these areas. The first of which is standing fast in one spirit. Look at verse 27 again. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs. And here it is that you stand fast. Are you standing fast, we asked this morning, in one spirit, with one mind? Are you standing fast? That's the admonition here. And the Bible has a great deal to say about the importance of standing fast. The first thing we need to appreciate about this admonition is the 
the clear implication from what Paul writes here to these Philippians whom he loved dearly, a great congregation of people, but what we need to appreciate first of all, as we have talked about in many other instances with many other passages, is that this is simply another one of hundreds, literally hundreds of texts in Scripture that tell us it's possible not to stand fast, that it is possible to fall. Otherwise, why is there an admonition here to stand fast? If there were no possibility of these Christians, and there's no question about the fact that these were Christians, if there is no possibility that they could have fallen, then where's the purpose of this admonition? Why would he write to them, I want your conduct to be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, in other words, I don't want you to be... uh, Uh, in my presence only faithful to God, I want you to be faithful whether I'm there or not. And that's the way all of us should be. But part of that faithfulness, a part of that satisfactory conduct, is going to be whether or not you are standing fast. But notice how they're to stand fast. In one spirit, with one mind. The word mind is from the word suke, literally with one soul. There's no way to overemphasize how important how important this unity is that is being stressed here. And that we stand together, standing firm is the idea, or standing fast is the idea. No way to overemphasize how much unity, what kind of complete unity is enjoined upon us here. That we are to be together. The Bible has much to say about it elsewhere, about standing fast. Remember 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Paul, there... Watch you, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong, stand fast in the faith. Galatians 5.1, there he points out to those Galatians who were in danger of falling from their steadfastness based upon being seduced back under the law of Moses. The admonition there in Galatians 5.1 is again, stand fast, therefore this time he says in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not become entangled again with the yoke of bondage. What yoke of bondage was he referring to? The law of Moses. Stand fast in the liberty. What was the possibility there with the Galatians? That they would not stand fast in that liberty, the perfect law of liberty, the gospel, and that they would succumb to the temptation to go back under the law, to to be uh, seduced, to go uh, back under the law and to bind circumcision and so many things that had been done away. And incidentally, in that same context, down at verse 4 of Galatians 5, how much clearer could the statement be than this when he says, you have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. We pointed out before that it is amazing how many people today in the religious world contend that one cannot fall from grace. When, as we have said before many times, there are literally hundreds of passages in the New Testament that make it abundantly clear that one can fall from grace. Old Testament too, for that matter. Yes, indeed, there's no point in this admonition towards satisfactory conduct to stand fast in one spirit if there were no possibility that existed that they would not or could not fall. Why admonish them to stand fast? But again, the manner in which they're to stand to stand firm, to plant their feet, in other words, firmly firmly, and not to move back. We're going to see some athletic allusions in this text we're studying this morning, allusions to athletic contests. And you know, when you're 
thinking about a, a, a wrestler, his idea if he's in a wrestling contest is to hold his ground and not to be thrown, obviously, and to stand firm. And that's the idea here, that we're to stand firm, that we're not to be thrown off balance, we're not to be backed up, we're to stand firm in one spirit, but with one mind is the idea. Well, I've mentioned before and just recently that I believe we have that kind of spirit. I think we have that kind of mind here at White Oak. And it's something we must never, never take for granted. We must never lose sight of the importance of that kind of unity, of that kind of mutual encouragement, of that kind of standing side by side, as it were, standing firm against anything and everything, anyone and everyone who would seek to overthrow our faith. We need to make sure our conduct grade is satisfactory when it comes to this particular admonition to stand fast in one spirit. But that's not all we find. That's not all we find in this passage in verse 27 as well. He also adds here, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And we mentioned that there are athletic allusions in this text, and here is one of them. In fact, the original word that is translated striving together uh, has the idea of athlete. Uh, that's a part of the word, athleo, soon athleo, this particular form of it, soon athluntes, athlu, ath, get it, athletics, athletics. That's what he's referring to. That's the allusion here that he's talking about. We are as if we are in an athletic contest and we're striving, we're agonizing literally in that contest. And we are in a contest. We're in a, a contest for our very souls day in and day out with the God of this world, Satan, who seeks to overthrow us. And we've got to strive. We've got to agonize as it were. For what? For belief? Well, no, but yes, we do need to believe, obviously, but that's not what he alludes to here. When he mentions striving together for the faith of the gospel, he's not talking about striving together for belief. We know belief is essential. Belief is important. Tragically, there are those who contend that belief is all there is. That is, all that matters is belief. But that's not what he's talking about here. He is talking about the faith of the gospel. What is the faith? That is the system of faith as it is so often used in Scripture. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. Remember what Jude wrote in Jude 3? Contend earnestly for the faith once for all. The idea there is once for all time delivered to the saints. The gospel has been once and for all delivered to us and we're to contend, we're to strive as if in a, a wrestling match, as it were, an athletic contest where great uh, exertion is involved. It is not something we can take lightly. It's not something we can just uh, lie back and relax about. It is something that we have to be on guard about. It's something that we have to strive every day to make sure that we are not what? guilty of unsatisfactory conduct and that our conduct is worthy that goes back to the beginning of verse 27 that our conduct is worthy of the gospel of Christ that is that it 
it complements the gospel, that it, is in, that it is in harmony with the teaching of the gospel is the idea, and that it doesn't bring reproach upon the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. And part of that is striving as if in a rigorous athletic contest for the faith. Something that's suggested by the faith is that it is what? Just, the, the, just that, the faith. Not the faiths, plural, but the faith, singular. It also implies that we can know what the faith consists of, doesn't it? In other words, there are those who would tell us today that it really doesn't matter what you do in relation to this book. If you are striving and believing with all of your heart that you are striving for for a heavenly cause and that you're following God, then if it turns out that you're wrong about that, as long as you were striving and sincerely striving, then you're going to be fine. No, there is nothing in Scripture that gives any hope to anyone in that situation. There is no comfort to be found in that kind of philosophy, in that kind of approach to this book. This book is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It is specific. It is singular. If you go with me to Galatians chapter 1, again, Paul there is the writer and makes it abundantly clear as he writes again to those who were being tempted to give up the gospel of Christ. He wrote to them and in verse 6 reminded them, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert what? The gospel of Christ. What is the difference between the gospel of Christ and the faith of the gospel? Absolutely no difference at all. They are completely synonymous expressions. And so Paul writes on this occasion and says, there are those who are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But then what does he say about that? In verses 8 and 9. But even if we, listen to it, or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. And so there is but one gospel, one faith. Remember Ephesians chapter 4? One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's above all and through all and in you all. One faith, one system of faith. It is the gospel. It is the faith. It is the faith of the gospel. In this case, in Philippians 1, 27. That's how he refers to it. The faith of the gospel. In other words, the specific pattern. The specific doctrine which obviously tells us that while many deny it, this book is a pattern for our lives. This book is specific. This book must be obeyed, and we must strive together for that once-for-all delivered faith. Striving as in that athletic contest so that our conduct grade in this area will also be satisfactory. But then there's another admonition in this passage, and that takes us down to verse 29. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer 
for his sake. And he adds, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Back at verse 28, what he writes there deals with the idea of suffering because he says, not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. What he's saying here is that apparently the Philippians were about to suffer or involved in the same kind of suffering that Paul himself had endured when he was at Philippi. You remember in Acts chapter 16 at Philippi when he and Silas were thrown into uh, prison there with the uh, conversion of the Philippian jailer that took place during that time. You remember they were beaten and thrown into prison and they were there about midnight singing, uh, singing praises to God having been persecuted and beaten then later were released and insisted that the magistrates come themselves and let them out because they were Roman citizens. You remember that. Well, apparently what he says in verse 30 is an allusion to that incident having the same conflict which you saw in me. In other words, when I was at Philippi, you saw what happened to me. You saw what happened to Silas. Now, you are hearing that it's happening to me here in Rome. Because remember, he's writing this epistle from Rome. He's in a Roman prison. He's saying to them, you know the kind of conflict I had when I was there. And now you are hearing that I'm having that same kind of conflict here in Rome. And obviously, they were about to endure, if not already enduring, that same kind of conflict with adversaries at Philippi. And what does he say to them about it? Yes, you are going to suffer. I have suffered, you know that. But don't be terrified, verse 28, by your adversaries. Because the very fact that they are persecuting you is simply proof that they're on their way to perdition. The fact that they're persecuting children of God is a clear indication of their perdition, that is their eternal punishment. They're going to be lost if they don't, if they don't change. But for you to suffer in this way is not a proof of your perdition, oh no. In fact, it's proof of just the opposite. It is proof of your salvation. In other words, you're doing the right thing. Your conduct is satisfactory. And because your conduct is satisfactory and theirs is not, they're persecuting you and that shows they're going to be lost unless they change. But it also shows that if you'll endure that suffering and continue to be faithful, you will be saved. And that from God, he adds. In other words, your salvation ultimately will come from God. But notice what he says about that suffering. Verse 29. For to you it has been what? Granted. Granted. Given. Granted on behalf of Christ. Not only to what? Believe in him, but also to what? Suffer for his sake. Isn't that an interesting way that Paul puts it? He's saying that this suffering is something that's been granted to you rather than something that's been put upon you something that God has not anticipated something that no he's saying it's been granted you it's been granted to you to believe in other words you've had you've had a blessed privilege and so have you here this morning if you're a child of God this morning it has been granted to you to believe in other words you have been blessed by someone in some way or ones to hear 
the pure gospel of Christ at some point in your life and to have the good sense to, to understand that this is the inspired teaching of God and this is the gospel that I need to obey and you've obeyed it and, you're, and you've been granted that wonderful gift of salvation. Now you had to accept that gift of salvation. How? By your faith. What kind of faith? Your obedient faith. In other words, you had to you had to appropriate the gift of salvation. You had to answer the call of the gospel, didn't you? That call that came through the gospel, you had to answer it. How did you answer it? By believing that Jesus is the Christ. But you were given that privilege to believe, weren't you? By what? By the grace of God. Titus 2.11, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. The grace of God is a gift of God. The salvation of God is a gift of God. But it is not an unqualified, unconditional gift that everyone gets. That would be universalism. And we know the Bible teaches no such thing. But we also should know the Bible teaches no such thing as appropriating the gift of salvation by faith alone, but only by an obedient faith that leads us to do what? God has told us in His Word to do. What is that? Believe that Jesus Christ is His Son. John 8, 24. Believe that I am He or die in your sins. Repent. Change your mind about where you are and determine to change where you are and to be in Christ and not out of Christ. Repent or perish, Jesus said in Luke 13, 3. Confess Jesus to be the Christ and He'll confess you before the Father in heaven, Matthew 10, 32. And be buried in baptism for the remission of sins. Yes, for, in order to, that's all it means, in order to have remission of sins, I must, by my belief that leads me to repent and confess His sweet name, then I must submit to that burial in water. Where the water cleanses me? Absolutely not. But where the blood of Christ is applied in that burial, as God has promised, to cleanse me from my sins and allow me to walk in newness of life as I rise from that watery grave and he adds me at that time to his body of believers, the church that I read about in the New Testament, the pattern for which is clearly set forth. That's the pattern I must be obedient to in order to accept what God has granted me and that is the opportunity to be saved. And Paul here writes to these Philippians who had taken advantage of that marvelous, wonderful gift and had believed. He says, not only has it been granted to you to believe, but it has also been granted to you to do what? To suffer for His sake. Remember Matthew 5, 11 and 12? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are you when men shall revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Rejoice even in suffering. Yes, but the key is suffering for his sake. Not to rejoice in all suffering, but to rejoice in suffering for his sake. 1 Peter 4.16 if any man suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. What about Acts 5, 41, when the apostles left the presence of the council there after having been beaten by the Sanhedrin, they left rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. 
then it shouldn't surprise us too much then for Paul to word it this way by inspiration when he says, it's been granted not only for you to believe, but granted for you to suffer because if you're suffering for His sake, verse 29, that's the key. For His sake, it's a privilege. It's a privilege. And God, through His Word, and through others standing with us in that suffering will encourage us to endure it, to rejoice that we're counted worthy, that our conduct grade is satisfactory when it comes to suffering because we can endure that suffering as God would have us endure that suffering, knowing there's something greater beyond that suffering, strength in this life to endure more of it, and certainly beyond this life, the reward of those who will suffer gladly for His sake. And so as we review our conduct, are we standing together? That's the first admonition. Standing together. Standing fast in one spirit. Striving together. In that athletic contest, as it were, never giving up, constantly striving for the victory. And finally, suffering together. Paul promises if we're faithful, if our conduct is satisfactory in these areas, then salvation from God awaits. And that certificate of satisfaction, as it were, won't be something we can keep and hold on to. But that certificate of satisfaction will be the well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things, I will make you ruler over many. Enter into the joys of your Lord. Well done. That's what he'll say. But at that time, if our conduct grade has been satisfactory, what is it that we'll have to say? He'll say, well done, but we'll have to say, as Luke 17.10 reminds us, we're unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. But if we've done it by standing together, striving together, and suffering together, and that's the key, isn't it? Together. Together how important it is that we stand together, that we strive together, that we suffer together, that we encourage one another in every way so that all will hear that well done, good and faithful servant. What about your conduct grade this morning? Can you say that it is satisfactory in the areas that we have discussed. It can't be if you have yet to begin the Christian life. It can't be if you have not expressed your faith in Christ as the Son of God, repented of your sins, confessed Him to be the Christ as we've outlined already in this lesson, and if you have not been buried with Him in baptism for the remission of sins. But if you'll do those things, He'll not only forgive you those sins through the blood of Christ, 
but raise you to walk in newness of life, add you to his kingdom, the church, where there are others willing and ready to stand together with you, to strive together for the faith of the gospel that you have just embraced, and even to suffer together with you and to encourage you in every way. There is no fellowship like the fellowship that is in the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And if you know that fellowship or have known that fellowship, that joy, that benefit of mutual encouragement, but you know this morning that as a wayward child of God, you've left that fellowship, you've left that faith, you have departed and gone back into the world in a way that brings reproach upon the blood-bought body of Christ, the church. Come home to her and to Him and to us as we pray with you and for you to a God who loves you and will forgive you if that's your need. As we stand to sing, will you come? Someday you'll stand at the bar of Someday your record you'll sing. Someday you'll answer the question of life. What will your answer be? What will it be? What will it be? Where will you spend your eternity? What will it be? Oh, what will it be? What will your answer be? Sadly, you'll stand if you're unprepared. Trembling, you'll fall on your knee, facing the sentence of life or of death. What will that sentence be? What will it be? What will it be? Where will you spend your eternity? What will it be? Oh, what will it be? What will your answer be? Now is the time to prepare, my friend. Make your soul spotless and free. Washed in the blood of the crucified one, he will your answer be. What will it be? What will it be? Where will you spend your eternity? What will it be? Oh, what will it be? What will your answer be? Be seated, please. <coughs> Number 713. <coughs> 713. We'll sing this hymn to the Lord's Supper.
Night with ebon pinion <coughs> brooded o'er the vale. All around was silent, <coughs> save the night winds wail. <coughs> when Christ the man of sorrows in cares and sweat and blood prostrate in the garden raised his voice to God smitten for offenses which were not his own he for our transgressions had to weep alone no friend with words to comfort nor hand to help was there when the meek and lowly humbly bowed in Father, Father, if indeed it may, let this cup of anguish pass from me, I pray. Yet if it must be suffered, my may thine own Son, Abba, Father, Father, let thy will be Let us pray. Our Father and our God and